Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today we are joined by the wonderful Moses Storm to talk all about his HBO Max special, Trash White. And I wanted to start by talking about the the genesis of the special as an hour long, because, you know, there's elements within the material and anecdotes that you're sharing that have been part of shorter sets before, whether it's, you know, a stand-up segment that you're doing on Conan or other stand-up shows that you're doing where you're only given 10 or 15 minutes. Um, you know, like if we take the cheerleading anecdote about going to cheerleading, camp that's something that you've used in material before and yet for the special for an hour long you've really kind of widened up the scope and given us so much more detail and so much more color within that and so what was that process for you in really mining a lot of the material that you've been working on figuring out what worked and then how you wanted to open up the stories and where it really worked to add those extra layers and those extra details comedically and narratively oh yeah well yes it's very much a special that's the product of where I'm at in my career. I think early on when you first start out and you're not these, these bigger comedians that, that have all the success and all this stage opportunity, what I can get around town is 10 minute sets. And that's, that's how this set was built. This entire hour show was these 10 minute sets. And then when I tour, you have to do comedy clubs, which is not, what this show really is. It's, it's more of a theater show. It's a piece of theater is essentially what I'm trying to do. And when you go to a comedy club, they're very nice. They sell all of the chicken wings. They smell like bowling alleys. And it's people that are essentially buying a ticket to eat. And then you are there also. And it's not what you get when you are a famous comedian and you're a little more well off where you can perform at theaters and you can do shows that are cater to your audience. People are buying a ticket to see you. A lot of times people will come up to you after a show and be like, we've you, that was great. We've never heard of this place. We've never heard of you, but we come to this place often. So in LA, it's all those 10 minute sets. So that's, that's how this, yes, like those segments are other places. And then going on the road was just trying to thread these pieces together, which came pretty natural because I am telling one story with the special. It's all one point and that felt pretty natural, but it was also, I you shouldn't really say this, but the first time I did that show in its entirety with graphics and the all the elements threaded through, even a few jokes in there, I've never said before, all the, the during the taping was the first time that that show was up. And that's not because I'm so cool and artistic and, I want to keep it raw and real. It was just, that's, that's the opportunity I had. And I was very fortunate that HBO Max gave me an opportunity. And I was like, if I'm going to get this opportunity to, to do it, then I'm going to go all out and do it right. And yes, when you are building one story to answer the first part of your question, yeah, you have to fill it out with details. If you're telling a full story on like a 10 minute set that you do, or a five minute set you do on late night TV, you're just giving them a sampler platter. And I think when you're telling a full story, you have to give characters full arcs, uh, personality traits, and, 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 and make them feel like real people and give them something more than like, her hat was crazy. She had a jagged tooth. You, you have to fill out a personality to keep people engaged for the entirety of the story. Yeah. And jumping off of what you were saying about playing a lot of comedy clubs and being with audiences that maybe haven't even heard of you before, um, you know, there's such a, a different way that you're kind of reading the audience and connecting with them in those instances versus, you know, 
touring where people are coming specifically to see you, taping the special where people know that they're coming to your show. And so what are the kind of the different ways or the different tools that you use when you first come out, whether it's a 10 minute set or whether it's an hour long set with an audience that are there specifically for you to really kind of read the room and read that energy and feel out what it is that they need from you. Cause you can perform the same show every night of the week for a year and you're gonna have a completely different version of what that show looks like at each moment. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're so right. Um, what I do is is really just listen to what's happening in the room. That means watching the, the two comedians that open up for me and hearing what the crowd is responding to, what they're feeling, and then meeting them where they are at. I think a big mistake I made at the beginning of my career was just like going out full of energy and I could just turn this room. You can turn the room, but if you meet them on their energy wavelength, you meet them here. Okay, this is a late Friday crowd. Everyone's drunk. You've been working all day. You're drunk and you're tired and you're angry. It's a weird cocktail mix and you can feel it just from being the hours and hours I spend on stage. You can start to feel those out. So the first 10 to sometimes 20 minutes of my show will just be crowd work, will just be improvised things that are happening with that group that night. To be like, I see you, I hear you, I appreciate you coming out, I will make this about you. And then I essentially don't presume that everyone should just have my undivided attention. They, I, they, I shouldn't have their attention, that I should earn it. So like, I see you, I'm here, let's talk about this. Yes, you wanna take a phone call, that's fine. You want, you're talkative, let's get into that. Why do you feel like it's, it's fine for you to talk at a comedy show? And then that's just a lot of fun to do because it is exciting and it keeps it fresh. And then, then you've essentially earned it. So then you can go into these bigger stories that are sometimes uh, a bummer for people or you know they have some sad, some sad elements to it, but you, can, you have to earn that. So it's just a bit about listening to the crowd and then trying to improvise with them at the very beginning. Now, it's not like no one's coming out to see me. It's just I've, at the point of my career, it's, it's maybe about half people that have heard of me or seen a late night set. And then the other half is people that are there because uh, they're too drunk to go bowling. And you know, you're mentioning there some of the different tones of stories that you're telling. There's moments that are pure comedy. There's moments that are a little bit more serious. But you also assert within the show that you know it's not a TED Talk style. And yet, what's great about it is there are a lot of themes and topics and details that you give within the narrative, within the stories that you tell, that really kind of resonate and and sit with you. You know, for the hours and, and the days after you watch a show like this um you know and so how did you approach really finding what you wanted not just the overall tone of the show to be as a whole but kind of how you wanted to play around with those different moments in the show with that idea of you know i'm going to go into the more serious elements and i'm going to give all this background and all of this detail but at the same time i really want it to lead first and foremost from a place of comedy and from a place of humor yeah a lot of this show is is essentially me throwing a fit and complaining about other comedy specials, meaning leading by example, rather than saying this thing sucks, why, why is this this current state of comedy? It's just like, here's what I wish it was, selfishly for me. I wish that some of these TED Talk specials, uh, we won't name names, but I wish they had more just jokes in them, you know, because I think at the end of the day, everyone has bigger problems than me bigger problems than we could ever imagine other people have. And you put on stand-up because you do want to escape and it should be something that's fun and light 
at the end of the day, you're supposed to make people laugh. That's the number one job. Now, if you can say something after that, then what a bonus. And that's another way of keeping people's attention and engaging them is actually saying something. And it's not just a collection of dating jokes and texting be weird. So it's, it's all out of trying to just entertain people. That's, that's the, the purest thing I could say about it outside the, you know, I need a lot of attention, but it's just trying to entertain people. So if that means meeting the crowd where they're at and they just want jokes tonight, sure. If you're in San Francisco and it's a more NPR crowd, well then, yeah, they want a, a fuller story and they want, they want you to actually say something. So it's trying to meld those two together. So these, so the comedy special doesn't feel like homework because sometimes they can't feel like homework. I'm like, hey, you have to watch that thing because you are going to need an opinion out of it. So I'm just trying to choose just to entertain people because that's uh, something that meant a lot to me growing up is watching comedians specifically and entertainers and they helped me escape from my problems. And I feel like I should give that back. I think to that point as well, one of the brilliant aspects is when you step back and you look at the material and the way that you're telling these stories is the fact that you have the story that you're telling on the surface and then the layers underneath it. When you're showing us your family's old home videos of your mom trying to create a fake America's funniest home video segment that yeah. could get on the show and win $10,000, it's really hilarious to watch. And yet there's the undercurrent of everything that that means from what you've told us up until that point. And so when you're working on material, how are you? You are kind of like always thinking about the delivery, not just of the words that you're saying, but that kind of like that, that texture and that layer underneath and particularly in context of what information have I given the audience up until this point in the show? Yeah, that is a, a great question. Something I, I definitely struggled with uh, to setting this up because for people that are not familiar, uh, we were incredibly poor. And one of the ways, because we never had a traditional job, one of the ways that my mom would provide for us as a single parent is she would aggressively try to get us on America's Funniest Home Movies at, so you could win the cash prize. And so I, I, I show all these outtakes from the show. So initially doing that as a 10 minute set, it, uh, it just gets laughs because it's, everyone can identify with the parent that's being pushed to their limit and uh, overwhelmed by I mean, a swath of kids in the frame trying to get them to cooperate on a fake sketch. And then the kids uh, just, you know, very purely trying their best. So initially in a 10 minute set, it can sometimes feel like a roast on my mom. And it can sometimes feel like it's uh, very one-sided. And I don't think there's anything interesting about complaining about your childhood or two, making very one-dimensional quote unquote villains in the story. And in the full hour show, the challenge was trying to see things from her perspective, trying to see, okay, I don't agree with these decisions and these decisions made us live uh, incredibly poor, uh, incredibly poor and, and, and difficultly. So maybe, maybe there's, she's not a bad person and she was just trying her best. So it was just trying to bring those elements out and I guess if that's your antagonist in the story, in the full hour story, it was just filling that out and giving them a reason for this insane behavior that we're seeing. And then just naturally setting up that show, trying to just as a writing exercise, fill it out 
uh, legitimately came to a point of personal forgiveness to her. I'm like, oh yeah, I've been selling it to the audience so much that you know she's not a villain, and and I inadvertently sold it to myself. So for me personally, just the show alone was uh, about it was so much letting go and so much forgiveness genuinely happened. There's also a moment where you reference calling your mom to fact check something for the show. And I, I was interested in in that process and, and how you went about fact checking a lot of the details that you're telling, because you are telling personal stories and personal anecdotes, but obviously, you know, it's from your childhood. And so you are kind of still checking in to be like, is this exactly how I remember it? So what were some of the main details that you wanted to ensure were factually correct? Because you are not just representing stories from your own background, but from your mom and from your siblings as well. So you're also talking about their experience in a public platform right probably the biggest pit in my stomach was that was that feeling because sure i get the benefit of a career and people saying oh that's so brave or whatever thank you for sharing that but what you are doing is you're sharing your family's life their shame you're you're selling that and these are people that did not sign up for a public life i did if anything comes from that if i get negative reviews, press, people who hate the show or they love it, that is something I signed up for. They did not, they live their private lives and especially showing them on camera as kids, there's a huge responsibility to take care of everyone and then give everyone a, a heads up. And I think the main person was my mom is just saying like, hey, I'm gonna do this. And uh, I just, I need your support. It's, it's not gonna be a, condemnation of you it's just uh so talking through that and then because she's already seen podcasts she'll probably listen to this she she watches everything listens to everything and will sometimes correct things uh you know just like her side of the story and what's funny about it and why i brought it up in the special is that it's some it's worse her correction of the story is worse. Usually people try to save face and they're like, oh no, things weren't that bad. The way that she corrects things is inadvertently is incredibly honest. Uh, a great example is in the show, I, I talk about how she used to dye her hair blonde. And uh, that's because she didn't want anyone knowing that she was not a natural blonde. So it's like, cover your tracks. All the kids are blonde. And then just in that fact, she goes, okay, so I know you're you're talking about that on stage, but uh, I want you to know that I didn't just dye your hair blonde just for my sake. It wasn't just the blonde hair. It's that we were living in a one bedroom apartment that we were about to be evicted from because it's all the kids. And I was trying to make all you five kids look like one kid. <laughs> and I was, I, I, I was, I was uh, shook by that response that you, that someone would think like, oh, five separate human beings. Let's forget the size. Let's let's talk about their born genders, uh, personality traits. I mean, sure, we look alike, but not exactly. Blonde hair isn't going to solve it. That's not going to be like, oh, who's who? Uh, so yeah, it was just about taking care of them and giving them a heads up so no one's blindsided. You don't have to do that, but I felt like it was, uh, I don't know, it was important because I'm very aware that, um, that, th that these things are very difficult. It's, I'm able to transmute it into comedy and, and a career and, and a sense of connection with other people. But um, yeah, it's still, there's still things that carry a lot of weight and there's a lot of things that I'm, 
omitting out of just respect for them. I feel comfortable talking about these things that are a little bit darker that, that didn't make the special, but I, uh, I, I can't presume to know that about that. So the, the biggest change, the biggest like, you know, fake correction is actually lightening some of the details. You've also interestingly talked about how for you, there may come a point at which you almost don't want to do stand-up comedy if you end up feeling at a place where your life doesn't feel as relatable to the audience that you're speaking to. And for you, what would what would that kind of line be or what would that distance be that you think would make you stop doing stand-up comedy in the way that you're doing it right now? Uh, money. I live in a, uh, you're looking at a studio apartment right now with paper thin walls that's a little bit bigger than my torso part. And I think uh, money buys comfort and comfort removes you from experience. So we see this happen a lot with very successful comedians on like arena level, their problems become, hey, my driver said something weird. Hey, I'm trying to get a new gate installed at my mansion, but it's too big and the gate's too big for how long the driveway is and uh, private jet problems. And uh, yeah, it's, it's no longer relatable. And I think more toxic than that, more toxic than yes, just getting all this money is your fans. Now you're coming out to see people that are predisposed to like you. They already like you from the action movie you did. And now if you say anything that's mildly humorous and green text bubbles are for poor people and blue is for rich, then they're like, ah, because you have all this, this parasocial rapport with, with, with your audience. So you're not getting an honest answer. You're getting people that already love you and, and your shows are public appearances. So I think if I'm ever fortunate to get to that point, it's gonna be about getting out because you're gonna, I can't lie to myself and say like, I'm doing really well on stage. I'm only getting better when you're just playing to your base. On the flip side of that, with where you're at in your career now, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, you're playing with audiences that have come out to see you, you're playing with audiences that are new to you. Um, you know, I was interested in something that you've said about part of the excitement as you move forward in your career being, as people learn you more as a comedian, as they learn more detail about you, that there's a real opportunity to add a lot more layers to your comedy and kind of where do you see space in your comedy and the, and the stories that you're telling now, where when you know that you're playing to a room full of people and you're playing to full audiences that kind of know your background, know your story, and also just know your voice comedically and your stylistic tendencies that you can kind of really texture that out differently or what is it that you hope to be able to add to that? Yeah, so I think when you see a celebrity go and, and they're about to perform, they get maybe 30 seconds of uh, like, yeah, it's that person. And then you just have to rely on the joke. So it's not completely, it's not completely over after you get some success. But I think for me, it's going to be an, I what I hope this special will do. And I just want people to watch it because one, I, I genuinely think it's something that is... Uh, I don't know, put a lot of work into it. And it's it's for people to to enjoy and to engage with. It's going to be allowing myself to go deeper because I don't have to worry about drinks being dropped and, oh, the check came down. 
And now they're not going to listen because now everyone's trying to divide up how much the sliders were versus the quesadilla. If you're just, if you have that theater crowd and it's a great time right before you get too famous. I think a good example is someone like Taylor Tomlinson right now with a very successful Netflix special. And just in this past year has been able to do mid-sized theaters, not quite arenas. It's just, you know, good sized theaters where she can go deeper and because she has that trust with her crowd and she has people that are listening and i think it's uh it's a lot to spark my next thing that i'm going to say so it's uh what i'm looking forward to is having just people there that are there for the show and uh not for just something to do because that will allow me to open up and hopefully talk about some of these things that are a little darker and a little um, carry more emotional weight yeah. because you need people's attention to do it properly. I can't just throw it out in a one-liner, but uh, yeah, I'm excited for that just because I, it's something I want to work on and let go and want to transmute that into something that's, that's positive. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the production design of the show because it's very intentionally styled with a lot of details from the stage coming out in the center of the room, having the audience on each side of you so you can really kind of open up physically the way that you're telling stories, the way that you're moving around, the way that you're engaging with them, the way that the projections are happening on the stage instead of necessarily on a screen behind you, and even down to all of the objects placed at the edge of the stage all around, and then that aesthetic matching the outfit that you're wearing is kind of this pure white outfit. Um, and so how did you come up with a lot of the aesthetic details in working with your team creatively and figuring out what you wanted the show, not just to look like, but what you wanted the feeling in the room to be and the feeling for audiences at home watching it? It was a huge, huge undertaking because I am asking a lot from the crew. That's usually, you if, if you reach out to the people that produce stand-up specials, they get a red curtain, three purple lights, there's four angles, uh, four angles, and then there's a giant swooping dolly shot that's swooping in on, on uh, jokes about dating. And they're all shot the same way and they all look the same way. Um, and I wanted to do something different just out of my own personal pet peeves with stand-up specials and that it's not a visual medium at all. It's, 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 you, it's just something you listen to and you're in and out. Because I, I noticed how I was watching stand-up and I'm the, the base. I am the exact audience member that should be watching stand-up. And I would put it on and I would load the dishwasher. I would, I would get some vacuuming done while comedians I love are on because there's no reason to look. I mean, outside of like, oh, Sebastian Maniscalco, he's great because his face is so animated. Stand-up is something that could just be, uh, it could be an album. So it was about making a special that is visually pleasing. It's a full show. If you put all this work into your material, why wouldn't you put that, that much work into the visuals? So it was a lot. It was like, it felt like pulling teeth sometimes. So I had to do a lot of the stuff myself. Uh, I designed, I think I might even have this for you. This was my initial scale model. This is great to bring up on a podcast, you know, a visual thing, but just for you, for your reference, this was a scale model that I made of the actual stage, uh, hand placing everything. And then um, uh, in, this, in the stage being a screen as well and, and essentially 
if, if anyone hasn't seen it, this, this, this stage is um, surrounded by monochromatic trash, white trash, essentially, uh, which is supposed to represent what the special is, is making something beautiful out of trash, out of a, a terrible thing, something ugly, something, a terrible experience. So it was about working with uh, a great, a great set designer and just, um, you know, I, I was aware that I was asking for a lot. So I was like, well, I'm going to do a lot. So I went down to the uh, stage build. I bought a bunch of stuff, handpicked everything from uh, different flea markets and just the side of the road and uh, uh, prop house and then painted everything with the crew. And uh, yeah, I replaced everything. I think even the night before I was there till 12, 12.50 a.m. Uh, just placing everything on the actual set and wiring everything uh, there. And then edited all the graphics that, that play on the projector. And uh, yeah, it was about making something visual and um, knowing that if you are asking for a lot, you better be willing to do a lot because no one's going to do it for you. And um, yeah, so the aesthetic was really important. So that's the white clothes on the white stage uh, with all the trash and, uh, and the projections. Make it something that at least when you're loading your dishwasher, you would turn your head. That's really wonderful hearing how much detailing went into all of that. And, and the comedy special is also produced by Conan O'Brien, who at this point you've worked with for several years of your career, whether it's working with him on his show, going on tour with him, um, you know, hosting stand-up specials with other comedians um, through his brand, uh, you know, and also a comedian that's meant a lot to you. That's someone that when you were a kid, you were taping over educational tapes with his show to be able to watch his segments, um, you know, and in the time that you've spent working with him and really getting to see a lot of the behind the scenes elements, you know, the work that he's doing before he's going on camera to tape his show, the work that he's doing before he goes on stage to do a stand up. What are some of the things that you feel that you've really learned from watching those behind the scene moments and the preparation that goes into everything that we as audiences see on the other side? Yeah, he puts an incredible amount of work into something very stupid. And I think that's what I really liked about the, the late night show as a kid is there'd be a bit like the FedEx Pope and these insane characters that take a lot of setting up and just prop buying and hiring an actor when you could just write a joke and say it. And something I took from him is just putting a lot of work and detail into something very stupid. That joke is very, very stupid. And uh, as far as behind the scenes, it's been more important mental health wise of talking to him on tour about managing feelings of anxiety and just self-worth. And um, yeah, some of the heavier things. So I think becoming whole as a person has been the most helpful thing behind the scenes that he's given me. It's, it's been like a father figure where we're not like chum chum pal around. It is more like a very father son uh, relationship. And I don't want to project anything on him, but I just feel like the energy I feel around him is, is, is that of a mentor and a father figure that has more than just like, hey, you should, uh, you know, write your jokes or stretch before. It's more been about uh, the personal conversations we had about uh, just mental health that has prepared me for this. And, and he said some things that are very private that uh, I that have helped me out a lot. I don't I'll think I'll take to my grave, but it was a big aha moment. 
And, and then also seeing him jump around in stress before shows also made me feel better as the financer of like, I, I do that. I've always unnecessarily jumping around, stretching uh, and seeing him do that uh, with the full career that he's had, a whole theater of 3000 people ready to see him, to see him do that. I was like, oh, that's cool. I feel that. That's really fantastic. Well, congratulations on everything with the special. It's really great. And I'm excited to see everything that comes off the back of its success as well. Thank you so much, Moses. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it and hope people enjoy it.